Hosea 1. Review Hosea means salvation. It's um, Hosea's uh, a prophet to the northern empire, the capital city, Samaria. I have to keep reminding myself that because I always want to think, oh, it's Israel. You're talking about Israel. It's Jerusalem. All this is taking place in Jerusalem. Not, not the case. This is the northern part. Uh, after Solomon died, there was a civil war in Israel, and the nation was divided into two halves. You had the northern kingdom with about eight ish. Ten-ish, it's normally said ten, but it's around eight-ish tribes. And then the, the, the other tribes that are down south, which becomes Judah. And so you have the northern kingdom, the house of Israel, and the southern kingdom called the house of Judah. Um, God has Hosea as this spokesman to the people at this time, preparing them for the judgment that's about to come, because God does not do anything that he's not tell his prophets first. That's what he tells us through Amos. And he says, go marry an adulterous woman. So he does. We talked about building the picture in our mind that they're probably younger, you know, childbearing age, this young couple. And his marriage is going to take up chapters 1, 2, and 3. It's a picture for Israel to watch. And that's an unpleasant thing, you know, to watch a, a husband and a wife that are committed to each other, supposedly, and watch one not be committed. And God said, that's what the world sees, and they say, me with you. Because I've chosen you, Israel, and you're not faithful. You say you're mine, we've made vows, we've gone through the ceremony, we, we've done the covenant thing, we've done it all, and, and you're unfaithful. And so as you watch Hosea struggle and go through these embarrassments, know that that's what I face, because that's how you are. And so that's God's relationship with Israel, and so it's a, played out in a very harsh and hard way. And yeah, it's hard on Hosea. Lord, can you imagine his day? I surrender to be yours, I'll be your prophet, I'll be your mouthpiece. Okay. Go marry an adulterous woman. Anybody that says following God is the easy way out. Right? A lot of people I would say Christianity is a crutch. <laughs> yeah, uh, you've never you've never walked it. You, know, you never made it real in your life. You see how much a Satan it is. It costs you to follow Christ. You know to be different, to stand up for Him, and to and to, and to be faithful unto Him. And so um, Hosea lives that out for us. He's married to Gomer. Um, her name means complete, or the full measure. I got to thinking. I'm like, they're probably all like, well, we can probably mark it down. Brian's going to do this. He's going to tell us what their names mean. And then we'll go on, which I am. I'm going to. And I'll continue to do so. But why? Why do I do that? Why do I talk about their names? Why do I tell you, here's their name and what it means? One is kind of cool. You know, it's like, you know, if you met somebody who was a Native American Indian and they said their name, you know, it's, you know, I'm you know, Shining Feather or something. We'd all, that's cool. Yeah, I come on my dad and the family and there's something that ties to it. A lot of us have probably researched our name. What does your name mean? You know, I know I've looked up ours and stuff before. You know, so try to look at it, but it's more than that because this is the Bible and this is God's word, and God's in it all. God's through it all. Nothing is just randomly grabbed and placed in here. God is in the details, and He picks the players. He did then. He does now. Sometimes I need to be reminded of that, but it seems like the world's out of control and what's happening. God's like, I'm in charge. I put in who I put in for why, my reasons and how. Just trust me through it. And so he has their parents name them. 
You know, sometimes he lets them choose, and sometimes he tells them. Uh, most of the time, it's a free will choice. It's just weird, and it's a coincidence that it happens to be the same name that God would want them to have. Uh, no, we always, the same. We say that the rabbis say that the coincidence is not a kosher word. God's in charge of it all. You know, it's like uh, sometimes God just says, "No, I want you to name them this," and it's not just because God thinks I like that name. That name sounds good in my mouth. Or I watched a show and I like that character. Yeah, name them. That's not God. God's like, "No, I'm telling you what to name them for a reason." Uh, let's look. Uh, Let's look at this. Look at Matthew chapter 1. I'll start with the most obvious. <laughs> this is the first place my mind went. <laughs> Matthew 1 and verse 20. Matthew 1, 20 says, But while he thought on these things, speaking of Joseph, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, Thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. You know, I guess I could have went with John, I could have went with others, but I picked this one. But he tells them right here, I want you to name him Jesus. And then he tells us that he's going to save their people from his sins, because Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. So it's a perfect name for Jesus, right? Jehovah is salvation. Because here it is, Jehovah's salvation, Jesus in the flesh. You know, we can go to chapter 1 of John. Oh, the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh. Jesus, or Jehovah is salvation. In the whole Old Testament, we could look at Joshua. Because Joshua is Jesus. <laughs> we just say it different. It's the same name, Yeshua. And it means Jehovah is salvation. So it is the same thing in the Old Testament. If we looked at Hosea, I've told you Hosea's mean means salvation. It's not the fuller name. It's like a short name. It means salvation. Where the other two is Jehovah is salvation. His just means salvation. So I was thinking, if I looked at my Bible and I looked at the tabs, I got I paid for the fancy thumb cuts. It makes, helps me to find it better as I flip through. If I was to look at it, and I looked at it, so, okay, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and get to uh, Joshua. You know, we, we tend to look at it like, oh, these are the books, and that's how they go. But there's meanings behind all of it. Genesis means in the beginning, literally in the Hebrew, in the beginning of the creation or the origin. Exodus is the exit from. That's when they're leaving. That's right? when they're going out to be their own. You know, I, I get a little synopsis just by looking at the title. Leviticus, and he called. Uh, our names have kind of derived from this, but I'm, I'm telling you the Hebrew and its origin. And, and he called. And he does. He takes them and he calls them out of people and he makes them that. And uh, Numbers, in the desert is the Hebrew. We call it Numbers, but, but theirs is in the desert. All right, we're getting a brief synopsis of Israel. Deuteronomy means words. It's the words. Words of Moses, the words that God gave Moses. It's the things that he said, it's the songs that he sings, and he puts them all down there. And so you kind of get this brief history of the beginning and the fall of man and how it goes, and he calls out this nation in the desert, and he takes them there, and he gives them the words and how they're going to be and the things that we've looked at lightly and least referred to about, you know, I get before you the words of life, and I said, choose life, life and death, choose me, and he encourages them to do that. And then they're like, the ultimate help, and it goes to the next book, Joshua, salvation, literally, Jesus, right there. Literally means Jesus. And we can skin on along, and we get to another verse, another book, Hosea, which literally means salvation. God's kind of giving us a point out what his book is about. It's about, you guys are in trouble, 
and I have sent salvation, and I've sent salvation, and I'm sending salvation, and I want you to understand it comes my way, not your way, and you're going to do this, and I'm going to tell you how to give you the detail. And so God is sending this Savior in the New Testament. We get that way. Jehovah is salvation. That literally points to Jesus. All this points to him, and every name, every little thought, every word and deed is all pointing to him, and it's all done by design. Look at um, Genesis chapter 5. We get another one, so it's some of these, we can just read them and you just go right past them, and that's fine. You get the story because the story is there, and what the story is what it's supposed to be. <clears throat> but God's not just in the story. God's in the details of the story. I'm, I'm trying to, I was trying to remember the term that the rabbi said, that when the Messiah comes, he'll not only teach us the letters, but the spaces between the letters. You know, it's like he's going to interpret the word, and he's going to interpret everything. Why there's a pause, why is this here, and why is that there, that God's in charge of it all. That this is a supernatural book, is what I want you to understand. And that's why we look into the details, but God, because God's writing and working in all kinds of levels. So here in Genesis 5, in verse 22, it says, And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years, and he became, uh, or he begat sons and daughters, and then we know he goes and, and, it, and it marches. And this is how, it, how that chapter kind of goes. But we have Enoch here, this, this prophet, the one who's so good that, verse 24, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. He doesn't die. He's a type of the rapture, a picture in the Old Testament. But Enoch has a son, and he names him Methuselah. And you're like, that's a weird name to give a kid. You know, just because it sounds weird, but names mean something. And this whole passage, it all means something. But here, Methuselah means, his death shall bring. Uh, what happened the year that Methuselah died? Anybody know? The flood happened. His death shall bring. His, he was a prophecy. Enoch was a prophet. And we don't have all the details. and We don't get all that story. And I'm sure there's a, there's a good one. And I'm sure we'll learn it in the future. But he's like, you name that boy Methuselah. His death shall bring. So he was a prophet. That was the year the flood came. How long did Methuselah live? 969. The oldest one recorded in the world in history, right? That's there. So God sent a judgment he sent a prophet, Enoch, warning, and he gave him a son whose name means his death shall bring, and he kind of gave him a countdown clock, right? And so it goes, and the name he brings, he fulfills it. The flood does come. But Methuselah, by living 969 years and fulfilling this prophecy, as, as God said, and the flood does come, and then his descendant, Noah, you know, is, is spared on the, on the ark. Methuselah is also a picture of God's long-suffering, isn't it? Because he let him live 969 years. It shows God's patience, because God's not willing that any should perish, that he wants all to come to salvation, and Noah's building the ark, and he's making a big do about it, and people are talking about it, and Noah's preaching for the 120 years that he's building the ark, I think it was, and, then, and, and, and yet God's showing his patience, his long-suffering through Methuselah, still being alive, another birthday, we can all breathe easy. He's not willing that any should perish, and so when we look backwards, it's like, yeah, it's just a name, Methuselah, his death shall bring, but it's also a picture that shows us it's God's grace. That God is not willing, that God is slow to wrath, that God wants people to get on board and to get in the ark and to be safe and to be secure. But it's very specific, it has to be his way. So names mean something. Names are there for a reason. Hosea is told to name his children. He says, I'm going to tell you what name to name your kids. So I think there's something in it. If God's telling you to name your kids, if we go back to Hosea 1, I, I think there's something in that. I think there's something besides he just likes the, name, the sound of it. 
So before we get to the kids, we're Gomer. Her name means complete or full measure. You know, we, we think of seven as the number of completeness in the Bible. Seven days make, makes a week. It's completed, then we start over. Eight octave, you know, a new one begins. And so Gomer, her name means complete, full measure. I think we can interpret it that he picks her to be Hosea's wife because he's like, I'm sick of it. I've got the full measure of you. Israel, I am done. My patience is over. You've crossed the line. And I'm now bringing judgment upon you. And so I bring a gomer, one who the measure is full and the picture is there. That I, Hosea is me being married to Israel and he is married to her. And her name literally is, I'm sick of it. You know, I'm, I'm full measure. It's complete. I'm done. I'm ready to turn and, and start judging you. So all of it becomes a picture, even her name and who she is and what she is doing. Let alone we get to the kids. Verse 4. And the Lord said unto him, because they have this first son, call his name Jezreel. For yet a little while, and I'll avenge the blood of the Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, and will cause to cease uh, the kingdom of the house of Israel. And, and we looked at that last week, but just to remind you, Jezreel means sown of God. You know, he's broadcasted, he's, he's sown. But it's one of those words that kind of has two meanings, you know, kind of a little inflection on how you can do it. It also means God will scatter. Kind of the same, kind of different, you know, that God can scatter it. So just like a guy scattering seed would throw it out. Jezreel becomes also synonymous with the place where it is. And so before he's born, it's the valley of Naboth. This is where Ahab and Jezebel, you remember, he wants this vineyard. And, uh, but someone else owns it. And he asked him to buy it, Naboth. And he's like, no, I don't want to sell it. It's my, my family vineyard. And it's like, he's like, but it's the best one. And I want it. And he goes back and he throws a pout, you know, and Jezebel says, I'll get it for you. And so they bring up false witnesses and get him killed. And they take it over. And it is kind of funny that Jezebel's name means chaste. <laughs> you know, this, uh, you know, she's anything but, you know, her name becomes known as anything but chaste. You know, someone is a Jezebel. And I think God's has irony as well. <laughs> but uh, Jehu has this big battle there, and we've talked about this as being the bloodiest piece of ground on earth, all the different wars. I think in the introduction I went through and I listed several of them that I could find. And then ultimately we know that this is where the last battle will be, well, next to the last battle will be fought of Armageddon. Armageddon is Harmageddon, which literally means the mountain of Megiddo, is, is the mountain that looks over the valley of Jezreel. Jezreel. So it's like the, the battle goes on there, and this is the place where you can see it. And so um, the day of Jezreel becomes a thing we're going to look at more uh, in, in our studies as we go. And day of the Lord, those are synonyms. You can use them the same. And so I, I know we'll study Jezreel more in the future, but we spent some time with that last week, and uh, I read way too much that I should have summarized, and I apologize, but... Uh, Let's move forward to verse 6. Verse 6, they've had a little boy. Now they have a daughter. Verse 6, and says, And she conceived again and bare a daughter. And God said unto him, Call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Lo-Ruhamah, her name literally means no mercy. Or to break it on down in like the common vernacular, it would be like not loved. How'd you like to be that kid? Not loved. Come home. It's time to go to bed. You're not loved. Everybody's probably like, poor kid. Or specifically, it means never known the father's love because they didn't know who the father was. I think Hosea loved her, you know, because it's his child, right? And God told him to. He's a prophet, so I'm sure he did. 
but it means never known the Father's love. She didn't know that. She's a child of whoredom. No mercies. Look at verse 6 again. And she conceived again and bare a daughter. And God said unto him, Call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I will have... Uh, for I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel. He tells us the definition right there, right? Because I'm, I'm not going to have mercy on the house of Israel. But I will utterly take them away. And again, this is where we have to keep our minds fixated here, that house of Israel is the northern kingdom. Judah is the southern kingdom. We're not talking about Israel as, as a whole. It is two divided kingdoms. But, uh, but there's a but. Verse 7. But I will have mercy upon the house of Judah and will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by the bow, nor by the sword, nor by battle, by horses, nor by horsemen. He's like, I'm not going to show mercy anymore. House of Israel, northern kingdom, I'm showing you mercy no more. But Judah, the southern kingdom, the ones who've stayed true so far, I'm going to show them mercy. He goes, and I'm going to save them. And he's very specific. I'm going to save them, and I want you to know the details on how I'm going to save them so you know who I am and that I keep my word, that I'm a God who can tell you something in advance, and I will do it. I want you to know. This is my reputation. If people say, well, you can't prove the Bible and you can't prove God. Yes, you can. God tells you things in advance so we can prove it. He, he, he does it time and time again. It's the thing he's chosen. I will tell you uh, that which has not happened yet, you know, before it happens so that you know that I am he. And he's done it throughout history, and he's continued to do it, and we're watching it being fulfilled now. So he wants them to know that it is the him who saves them. So he says, I'm being very specific on how I'm going to save you so you know that it's not me and it's not something else. Like, um, I remember hearing about a Christian woman who was a, uh, this is a story, a story about a Christian woman who was uh, very hungry and poor. And uh, she had an atheist neighbor, because that's usually who moves in next to a Christian. You know? And so as, as she would pray, she was praying for her food that day. God, I'm hungry. Please, you know, send some food my way. I don't have any money. I have no means of support to be able to get this. And so um, the atheist hears it. He's like, I'll show her. So he goes to the grocery store, and he buys a bag of groceries, and he fills it all up real good, and he, he sets it on the door for her, and she goes out for that day, and she opens it up, and there's enough food for a week. You know, she's like, wow. And she begins to jump around, praising God. Praise you, Lord. You've sent me groceries for a week. I knew you would. I knew you'd take care of me. And he comes down, aha! It was not God who did it. It was me, the atheist neighbor. She's like, praise you, Lord. You used the devil to fulfill your prophecies, you know, to fulfill your promises to me. It's like, you know, a lot of times it is that way. And we can look at stuff and see that, well, God moved through that. And he did do this. And he did use people in a very specific way to fulfill and to answer these things. God does that a lot. And that is a pretty common way in which he does it. He'll use, because the church is here and we're to be his hands and feet, right? And so he uses his people to do that. But God says, I want this to be different. Who called Joseph and Mary to do that? Who called Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem? Who caused them to go there? Oh, who caused them? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Caesar, yeah. <laughs> to fulfill the prophecy, yeah, but by fulfilling it all out. Yeah, he makes it all line up and so he uses the heathen to put things in place as they're supposed to be. And so, he wants the northern kingdom to know that it's God who saves them. He wants the tribe of Judah, or the, the house of Judah, to know that it's God who saved them. He wants the world to know, 
oh, this miraculous thing that I did. I want you to know that I'm the God who saves my people, that Judah's right with me. I say that I show mercy to them. I'm done with the northern half. I'm, I'm about ready to bring judgment upon them. But I want you to know I save them who, who, who follow and stay in lockstep with me. He wants you and I to know that he's the God who can intercede, that God is the one who can do it, that he doesn't have to work through the atheist neighbor, that he can do it sometimes all on his own if he wants to. Anytime he wants to, he can do that. He says here, the way they're going to do it in verse... Um, Seven is that it's, he lists everything. He basically takes every weapon out of play. He says it's not going to be a bow. That's the long distance weapon. That would be their rifle of the day. You know, it's like uh, I think the army's mindset is the best way to engage in conflict is the distance. You know, the further away you are that you can engage and take out the enemy, the better your chances of survival. The closer it gets, you know, uh, I heard it said that when they were studying, they were putting together the, the, the fighting manuals for the army. When it got down to hand-to-hand combat, they're like, we didn't think we'd get this far. You know, and it seems like it's almost an embarrassment. We should take them out from a distance before we ever get to the point where it's hand-to-hand. And so they had to come up with something to do. And so they write a hand-to-hand manual because their idea was, we're going to kill them from far away. We don't want to get close. You know, and so, but, so we take out the bow. God says, it's not going to be the bow. It's not going to be something to distance. It's not going to be hand-to-hand either. I'm taking out their gun of the day. We're taking out the sword. You know, that's bigger than a knife. You know, you can reach out and grab somebody. As a matter of fact, he says, it's not even going to be a battle. No one's going to go out and fight for them. No one's going to go out and, and do anything. There's not even going to be a fight. Uh, it's, not going to, it's not going to use any horses. Horses, that would be their, uh, their tanks, their rapid assault vehicles. You know, be able to come in and fast. If you had horses, that would strengthen an army that they would have that. And he says, it's not even going to be their horsemen. I'm not going to use any kind of technology to do this. It's not going to be anything that you can think of of warfare. I will defend them and you will know that it's me. That's what he does. So how? How would he do that? Well, in 701 B.C., Sennacherib, that'll be on the test. Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, decides to attack Judah. And he has a massive army. He has like a juggernaut army. He comes in and he is going to uh, take them out. And the prophets begin to warn him. He's like, no, it's not going to happen. He brings this huge army against them. And it seems like there's all destruction's going to come, and like there's nothing that's going to help them. It seems like all is lost. God sends an angel out in one night. And one night, he kills 185,000 soldiers. And like you would do when you wake up, and 185,000 of your soldiers are dead, they pack up and leave the next day. And it's been rumored and, and thought and, and, and pondered, and I spent some time pondering it. Did God leave one guy alive in each tent? You know, obviously there's people who left. Because the Turks were kind of famous. The, the Turks, they would like to sneak into a camp at night, and they would slit the throat of every other guy. So when you wake up and you saw that it could have been you, that it put a fear and a terror upon you that you're like, we don't want to fight the Turks. Did God do something like that? So when they left, because when they left, those who went back told such a convincing story and such a horrifying tale that they're like, we're not going back. And they never went back as a nation. And in that empire, they didn't go back to attack anymore. They're like, no. No, you go against Judah. You go against God's people. You wake up dead in the morning. <laughs> it's like, no, no, we're not going to do it. You know, and so they, they did that. He literally fulfills everything. That's in, um, uh, I think it's Second Kings. I didn't write it down. 
I thought I did, but about where that story takes place, but it's recorded. I think it's Second Kings 19. But um, he literally fulfills everything he says in verse 7, if we read it again with that in mind, that the angel goes and does He says, but I will have mercy upon the house of Judah, and will save them by the Lord their God, and will not have them, uh, or not save them by the bow, nor by the sword, nor by battle, or by horses, or by horsemen. No, he did it by an angel who went out and wiped them out. So, literally, the prophecy of Hosea 1, verse 7, literally comes true in 2 Kings 19 when that happens. But the Bible's deeper than that, and it's more layered than that. And God said, I wanted them to know that I'm the one who did this. And so I did it all in one night. And there was no battle, and there was no fight, and there was no military technology that went forth. I did this. And I want you to know it, and I want the northern kingdom to know it, and then let them know that judgment's coming upon you, and I'm not saving you. No, I've turned my back on you now. I'm up to here. I'm going where. I'm complete. I'm full of that with you. So judgment is coming. But in Ezekiel 38 and 39, let's look at that. Ezekiel 38 and 39 is a future war that hasn't happened yet that has eschatology students divided, puzzling when this happens. And so there's the camp that says this battle happens before the rapture. And there's some that say this battle happens after the rapture. And I don't know where I stand. I'm Sometimes I'd, I'd lean towards before, and sometimes I'd lean towards after. And I'd say today, I'd probably say I'd lean towards after the rapture. I think this might happen. So, but whenever we see Russia in military conflict, it, it, it peaks us up because it's Gog and Magog, and we think that's them you know, from the northern part. And we see them doing assaults, especially anything that starts engaging with Israel. We're like, ooh. You know, am I listening for a trumpet and cleaning my ears? I've got my Q-tips out. You know, we're going to be out of here pretty soon. Or we're going to see this happen first, and then we'll know, and then we'll know, no, no, that we know. <clears throat> but it's the same thing. God's going to miraculously intervene on behalf of Israel so that they know. So look at uh, verse 11. So this is Gog and Magog he's talking to. So Ezekiel 38, 11. And, and thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of the unwalled villages, and I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, uh, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither uh, bars nor gates, which is unthinkable to the ancient mind. To live in a city without wall was certain death. And so he's telling them about a battle in the future where this city doesn't have any walls. They might have an iron dome. You know, they, they, they might have a, what was the other one they called? Uh, they had a Bible name, something, not Gideon. David's Fist or something like that, Samson's Ra. There's some other kind of biblical name. Anybody remember? There's something like that, you know, that, that, that they have as well. But it's um, the Iron Dome, stuff that they have. But, you know, so it's a time when they don't have a wall, but they think, we can just go right in. You know, we'll, we'll get them. Verse 12, to take spoil, to take prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited, upon the people that are gathered out of the nations, which have gotten cattle and goods and, and dwelt in the land. And he says, okay, it's time right, let's go. Look at all the stuff. We can just go down there. and it's Easy pickings. Let's go get them. Look at verse um, 15. And thou shalt come to thy 
uh, place out of the north parts. That's why I think it's Russia as it comes down through that part there. Turkey, I'm sure, plays a part in it. And, um, and many people with thee, all of them riding upon horses, a great company and a mighty army. And that shall come up against my people Israel as a cloud to cover the land. It shall be in the latter days I will bring thee against the land that the heathen may know, know me. When I shall be sanctified in thee, O Gog, before thy eyes. God says, you come against them. You bring all your technology against them. All of you come down against them. He goes, and I'm going to do something so that the, the, the heathen, so, so that they'll know me, so that my nation will know me. Um, look at verse um, 23. Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. It's like a reintroduction of God back to his nation. Because we look at verse 8. It says, And after many days thou shalt be visited in the latter years, Thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of the many people against the mountains of Israel, which have been uh, always waste, but it shall brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, uh, all of them. And so he's going to bring, and if we had time to read it all, he's gathering all of them back out of the nations, putting them back in Israel as a nation, and he gathers this fight against them. He goes, now I'm going to show you who I am again. I'm going to miraculously save you by my hand, and I'm going to spare you. And, and he has details about all this battle between chapter 38 and 39, so that you'll know who I am, so the world knows who I am, that I am here, and we're back in the biblical scale again. And that's why I think it's probably after the rapture, setting things up for the tribulation, where it becomes biblical scale again between the beast. And uh, God fighting for them, just like Pharaoh and Moses. He's putting it on, on, on display, letting them see as he takes out the gods of this world one at a time, like the plagues in Egypt, that I am God. And he has his two witnesses, and he has 144,000 witnesses going around preaching and proclaiming the gospel to show that it is him, and that I am strong, and I will do what I say will do. And so he's introducing himself, and so it parallels perfectly with what he's saying with Hosea. And I think by the time we get to the end of the book, we'll see how all these line up again and again. Uh, with one another. So we go back to Hosea. And so Jezreel, God will scatter. Lo Ruhamai, I'm going to show you no mercy. And then verse 8 says, Now when she had weaned Lo Ruhamah, she conceived and bare a son. Then said God, Call his name Lo Hamani, for ye are not my people. And I will not be your God. Loamani means you are not my people. And so it's like Hosea looking at this child, and he's like, I can tell by look at you. <laughs> you're, you're not mine. She, she's been the harlot again. And I want to quit there for now and go into our business meeting, but set us up. We'll look deeper into the Lohamini next week about the implications of that. By God telling them, you're not my people. That's part of the covenant promises. And so we'll dig into it next week. And so names mean something. Names are important. We're getting the nation of Israel mapped out for us here in three parts. And the crazy exciting thing is that we live in a day and age when they are being brought back as a people. I mean, almost to the concept. Yeah, there's not much time left. And so it tells us the lateness of the hour. And we'll get into that as well.